1: Welcome, everybody, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And we have a special guest with us today, author Walter Borneman. My son had recommended one of his books called The Admirals and said, Dad, you really need to check this out. This is some great reading. And I did, and it is great reading. I can recommend it to all of you listeners. My particular interest within the scope of this book was Admiral Chester Nimitz. A legend. Walt, it's great to have you with us today.
0: Hi, John. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me on.
1: You bet. You share a little bit of your background with us and what led you to write the book The Admirals.
0: Sure. I'm a, I'm a Colorado boy. I grew up here climbing uh, Colorado mountains, uh, got a master's in history and a, a law degree, and kind of kind of went down the path of law for a while. But, you know, I was always interested in history, and I think it really goes back to uh, 1960 all that way with the centennial of the Civil War at a third grade teacher that kind of really, really instilled a love of history in me. And, you know, quite frankly, the Admirals, I think, is kind of an outgrowth of a number of my other books. I've written about the War of 1812, i wrote written a biography of James K. Polk, and I think a lot of themes uh, have been, you know, America's Western expansion, and, and America k- kind of embracing the continent, stepping onto the world stage. And quite frankly, this book, The Admirals, and all the four men that we talk about, Leahy, King, Nimitz, and Halsey, are really have their education rooted At Annapolis, uh, the Naval Academy, at that period of time, 1898, the Spanish-American War, America sort of has rounded out the continent. It's it's moving forward in terms of embracing its role in the world, and the Navy that they become a part of uh, during their Annapolis days really is the Navy that goes on to win World War II. So it's kind of fascinating to talk about that kind of theme in a broad context and look at these four individual men, you know, much, much different personalities, much, much different leadership style. But um, I won't tell you that Nimitz is my favorite, but I think he'd have to be pretty high on the list with anybody.
1: (laughs) That's fair enough. A little bit about Nimitz's uh, background uh, growing up. Where did he grow up? What kind of influences uh, sent him in the direction that he went? And what direction did he go in?
0: Well, you know, he grew up in the uh, sand hills of Texas, west of Austin and uh, Fredericksburg, and he actually wanted to go to the military academy. But there were so many, again, this is 1885 that he's born, and it's, it's the early 1900s when he applies. There are so many uh, cavalry officers who have sons on the western frontier who want West Point appointments that he can't get into West Point. So his congressman offers him an appointment to the, the Naval Academy, and, and he accepts it. You know, there's, there's kind of a funny story. Uh, Nimitz is a second-generation uh, German, and there's kind of a funny story that, that he goes to Annapolis and is told he needs to take a foreign language, and he writes back to his parents, who were still speaking German at home, and says, I should take a foreign language. What, what should I take? And they wrote back and said, well, take English, son. So, you, you know, that's the, uh, the upbringing that Nimitz had. His, his fa- grandfather, who was sort of the revered person of young Nimitz's life, he was called Captain Nimitz because there, there were various stories, most of them probably not true, about all of his seafaring experiences and the fact that, uh, uh, you know, out here in the sand hills of Texas, he is, in fact, still Captain Nimitz.
1: Uh, his grandfather was uh, with the Texas Rangers, from what I understand. Is that correct? Yes.
0: That's true. That's true as well. So between the Texas Rangers and seafaring and everything else, uh, he told Nimitz, uh, Chester was always a great storyteller, and I think he really learned it from his grandfather, who I'm sure, uh, whether it was Texas Rangers or seafaring, embellished some of those stories. He was
1: involved in World War I, is that correct?
0: He's involved in World War I. You know, Nimitz cuts his teeth in submarines. And this is an era when uh, their gasoline-propelled boats, really dangerous. I mean, a spark can set off uh, the whole boat aflame. And he helps with the conversion between gasoline-powered submarines and diesel and then goes on and spends a lot of time. He was always very proud of his dolphins, the, the signature, uh, signia of, uh, of submariners. And he spent a lot of time in submarines. And he actually, during World War I, one of the things that he's involved with is um, refueling ships at sea. So whether it's submarines or that kind of stuff, a large part of Nimitz's personality really is that he's an innovator. And I think that serves him well uh, across the expanse of the Pacific during World War II. That's
1: amazing because he's also credited, isn't he, with really putting the push on for the first nuclear-powered submarine?
0: Well, that's true. After the war, he certainly embraced nuclear power. Uh, kind of getting ahead of the story, I don't think he was particularly a proponent of dropping the atomic bomb. But after the war, uh, he's chief of naval operations for a couple of years. And and he definitely is a proponent of, uh, of nuclear power, for sure, in that capacity.
1: World War II breaks out. A Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. December 7th, 1941. Where was Nimitz at that time, and how long was it before he was thrust into a, a position of leadership?
0: So that afternoon of December 7th in Washington, Nimitz is out walking his dog around the neighborhood. He, he's in Washington. He's head of the Navy's Bureau of Navigation. Now, despite what that sounds like, that's essentially the Navy's personnel department. So he's been posted as a rear admiral to Washington, and quite frankly, his job in terms of the Bureau of Navigation is to oversee all of the postings of naval officers throughout the entire U.S. Pacific Fleet. So he has a really good idea. He's seen all their personnel files. He has a really good idea of what their personalities are, what their capabilities are. And if you say, you know, what was Nimitz's background or what made him a good leader and effective in the Pacific, I think it really needs to go to his his job on December 7th, which was as part of the uh, the head of the Department of Personnel. Now, very, very quickly, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, of course, and Secretary of the Navy, Knox, say to uh, Ernest J. King, okay, you're going to be the man who's going to lead the American fleet. And at the same breath, almost, they say to King, okay, who are we going to put in command in, in the Pacific? And that becomes Chester Nimitz. Uh, Roosevelt fairly famously says, uh, after King uh, uh, pr- promotes Nimitz and, and says he's the man to do the job, uh, Roosevelt's orders to King are, well, you know, tell Nimitz to get out to Pearl Harbor and, and stay there until the war is won, which exactly, of course, is, is what happens over the next four years.
1: What type of a leader was Nimitz? What do the subordinates think of him?
0: Nimitz is the kind of leader who really leads by example. I think uh, we'd go back to his days at Annapolis and the lucky bag, which is Annapolis's uh, yearbook, called him calm and steady and said that he had the ability to kind of get to the root of a particular problem. And I think that that's definitely true. You know, some of the other naval leaders of of World War II, including Ernest J. King, who always led as sort of a a brash style, uh, you know, very, very loud, boisterous, and uh, irate temper. Nimitz was very calm, very cool. uh, The kind of guy who would basically give you an order and, and put his hand on your shoulder and say, let's get this thing done together. And... I think the best thing that, that really epitomizes that is that after he's directed to Pearl Harbor, he shows up in Pearl Harbor on Christmas Day of 1941, flies in in a big four-engine uh, uh, Coronado PBY, lands in the waters of, of Pearl Harbor there, absolute destruction along Battleship Row. And, you know, even though he's seen the reports, he's, he's just horrified. Uh, he He gets out of the plane, gets into a whaleboat for the trip to the dock, and suddenly realizes he can't sit down in his whites because the entire whaleboat is just covered with grime and grease and oil, sort of again, a, a little epitome of what the entire u s fleet is is doing. And you know, Nimitz could have gone on and and um, you know cashiered a lot of people, could have made a lot of changes. Uh, could have really upbraided everyone. He didn't do that. He assumes command of the Pacific Fleet at the end of December on, on board the deck of uh, a submarine, the Grayling. He kind of likes to joke afterwards that he, he took command on a, on a submarine because it was only ships still afloat. That's not quite true. I think it probably goes more to his uh, affinity for submarines than that. But you know after he takes command, he really says, look, If you in senior positions here really, really want a transfer somewhere else, fine. I'll accommodate that. However, I'm convinced. I know all of you. I know your personnel records. We are all in this together. We're not going to spread blame. We're going to work together. We're going to put our shoulders to the wheel, and we're going to turn this thing around. Now, that's the public Nimitz. The private Nimitz is saying in a letter to his wife, Catherine, oh, my gosh, you know, the American people are going to have to have a little bit of patience because this is going to take some time. This is a, this is a big situation, and the American people are going to have, have patience, have to have patience. But again, you know, to his commanders, uh, he is confident, and he is one of camaraderie and one of let's get this done together.
1: Trick question for you. Two midway movies I can think of, one in 1976 and Henry Fonda played the role of Nimitz. And more recently, in another midway, Woody Harrelson played the role of Nimitz. Who do you think played the better character? And did you see well, both movies?
0: I, I have seen both movies. And, I, I John, I've got to tell you that I'm not a fan of, of remakes. So my answer may be colored a little bit by that. But there is absolutely no question. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I thought Harrelson actually did... An okay job, but there's no question that Henry Fonda is the personification of Chester W. Nimitz.
1: I thought he did a fantastic job. I still, when I see Nimitz, I know what Nimitz looks like, but I still see Henry Fonda. He just, he just yeah, played that, that, that to the happened. max. 1941 quickly evolves into 1942, what most people would probably call the lowest year for the U.S. and the Allies of World War II. What was Nimitz's position and our naval force's position at the beginning of 1942, and how did Nimitz face that?
0: Well, as commander-in-chief of the Pacific, I think Nimitz, and and this really goes again to one of his strengths, just like dealing with the personnel, I think Nimitz realized rather quickly that as horrific as the losses were at Pearl Harbor, uh, it could have been a lot worse. I think there are really three things that he seizes on and that allows him to build upon during those next six months. First thing, of course, is that the aircraft carriers were not in port at Pearl Harbor. At that particular time, there are only three carriers in the Pacific. Uh, Lexington and Enterprise are out of Pearl Harbor doing various tasks. Halsey and Enterprise are trying to uh, send planes to Midway. Uh, the Lexington's en route to wake to deliver planes, Saratoga's on the west coast, um, being refitted. So th- those three carriers are safe. And those three carriers are really going to form the backbone of Nimitz's specific war strategy over not only the next three uh, or six months, but over over the next uh, couple of years. The other two things, of course, uh, that he recognizes are that the submarine base at Pearl Harbor, which, by the way, he was in command of building back in the 1920s, so he knows it very well, uh, the submarine base and the submarine fleet is basically unscathed. Now, U.S. submarines in 1942 are going to have problems with torpedoes, and that's, that's a whole other story, but at least... Nimitz recognizes that there is this strike force that is available with submarines. And the third thing that he recognizes is infrastructure. The fact that the Japanese, uh, rather infamously or famously, however you want to say it, do not launch a third strike. And because they don't do that, things like the dry dock facilities, the oil storage tanks, I forget the exact number, but there, there there's millions and millions of gallons of fuel oil stockpiled at Pearl Harbor. If those tanks had gone up, then the ability to defend Hawaii would have been severely compromised. So those kind of things, in terms of infrastructure, and you know, there's there's eight battleships, and I, I think you know as well. One of my books is about Brothers Down, the the story of uh, all of the the, the 76 brothers. Pairs of brothers who were on the uh, Arizona, and you know there there are eight battleships there. Uh, nine deployed in the fleet. By coincidence, my own home state of Colorado's battleship is in Bremerton being refitted. But of those eight battleships, six are going to be refloated and see action one way or the other. Of course, the Arizona is totally destroyed, um, as as is mostly the the Oklahoma at that point. So you know those. Three things Nimitz really builds on, and we can talk a a little bit more about specifically what he does with various actions, but I think if you were to say, what does Nimitz do during the first six months of 1942 to reverse the course of the war, the, the two words would have to be aircraft carriers and that he really comes to rely on those carriers that escape Pearl Harbor and are able to do things not only like the Doolittle Raid, but Nimitz has got Halsey sending carriers all over the Pacific within weeks of, of Pearl Harbor.
1: When did the Yorktown enter the war?
0: Uh, the Yorktown goes from the Atlantic over to the Pacific, if memory serves about January of 1942 and it arrives there by, by, by February, what happens is that those three carriers we mentioned, Saratoga, gets hit by a Japanese torpedo off Hawaii really early on and has to limp back to the West Coast for repair. And Yorktown, at that point, is the replacement. And, of course, by the time of the Doolittle raid in April of '42, Hornet is on station out there, too. And, and famously, Hornet will be the, the main carrier who takes uh, Jimmy Doolittle, Doolittle's B-25s to, uh, off the coast of Japan.
1: We'll return to our interview right after this sponsor message. And now, back to our show. Walt, tell us a little bit about the early carrier raids.
0: Nimitz really quickly decides that some kind of action needs to be taken in terms of striking back at at Japan. And uh, Bill Halsey, who's been out on the Enterprise and come back into Pearl Harbor the, the day after the attack, and like everyone else, Uh, He just can't believe the destruction. But, you know, Halsey's a fighter. He's ready to get get back in in the action right away and deliver some blow. And Nimitz, and and again, I I think it's important to know that both of these gentlemen are good friends from their Naval Academy days. And, you know, it's definitely Bill and, and Chester. And they get together, and Nimitz basically says... Look, you know, we need to make some kind of foray, and we want you to take Enterprise and another of their classmates, Frank Jack Fletcher, uh, take uh, another carrier, Enterprise and and Lexington, and and basically make uh, raids against the uh, Gilbert and Marshall Islands. And in January of uh, 1942, again within 60 days of, of Pearl Harbor, they do that. Now, you know, the, this is a little bit more. I don't mean to downplay the operation, but it's it's more in the nuisance raid category and more in the morale-building category. It's not any great strategic blow to Japan, but they have been able to uh, knock out some 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 Japanese bases. And again, this is, this is early. This is going on the offensive in January of 1942. The second piece of, of that, which is really relatively little known... And it's a situation where Nimitz, again, sends out the carriers. And, you know, today we we look at the USS Nimitz and today and the the, the aircraft carriers we have, and we think, well, boy, these are major capital ships and an extension of of American foreign policy and, and military might. At this period in World War II, we really have a situation where even Ernest J. King, who sort of pushed carrier operations and pushed air power, is saying, wow, we can't get these capital ships lost. We better go on the defensive. We better pull them back a little bit. And Nimitz, even though he's come up in the submarine force and and everything, he really embraces the idea not only of air power, but of air power put forward with carriers. So he's got Halsey with, with the carrier raids into uh, the Marshalls and the Gilberts. By early March of 1942, he sends two more carriers into the Gulf of Papua on the south side of, of New Guinea, and that's a little-known operation. And the importance of that operation is that Ostensibly, they're there to fly over the Owen Stanley Range and, and attack uh, Japanese forces that are landing on the north side of New Guinea, around a place called Ley, And, you know, that all happens. They sink some transports. But what really comes out of that? Two things. One, they're able to uh, sink enough transports that the whole invasion that's planned through the Battle of Coral Sea, the Japanese put that on hold for about a month. Month may not sound like a lot of time, but in that period of the war, an extra month or even an extra week of preparation is big, serious stuff. The other thing that happens that maybe is even more important is that those American flyers flying off the decks of, of those two carriers, and, and I think at that point it's, it's Lexington. Uh, I know it's at Lexington and Yorktown at, at that particular point. Flying off the decks of those two carriers get a tremendous amount of experience that's going to serve them well, not only at the Battle of, of Coral Sea, but also uh, later on at, at, at the Battle of Midway. So, I mean, we could go, we go ahead a little bit and talk, you know, what's next in terms of the big picture, Nimitz and King. And by the way, Nimitz and King work very well together, despite almost polar opposite uh, leadership styles. Again, King is, is the really tough, hard as nails, uh, always in a rage type of commander. Uh, Nimitz is, is the opposite. But they work well together. And over the course of World War II, they meet 16 different times, sometimes in Hawaii, sometimes in uh, San Francisco, a couple of times in in Washington, for strategy conferences. And King is the one who really, in in the spring of 1942, tells Nimitz his marching orders. You got to save Hawaii and the lifeline to Midway. You got to keep open the supply chain to Australia, and third, which is kind of counterintuitive at that particular point, you got to be aggressive and strike back. Well, King means for the strike back to happen at the Japanese attack on Guadalcanal, for sure, but he also means it to be that Nimitz needs to orchestrate the Doolittle Raid, which he does and then be in a position to counter Japanese assaults through Coral Sea.
1: And for our listeners, I know a lot of you already know that the Doolittle Raid was the first real morale booster of World War II with regard to the U.S. and the Allies, the U.S. people, who needed good news by that time. And we sent uh, B-25 bombers off the deck of the...
0: Six, 16, 16, Sixteen. bombers. Um,
1: we sent 16 bombers off the deck of the Hornet, I believe it was, uh, to actually bomb Tokyo, which the Japanese were not expecting. And it was the first good news that America had in, in, in 1942 that said, we can get them.
0: And I think it's kind of interesting that even that attack on Japanese homeland really didn't change the perception of the Japanese uh, imperial staff that they had made this tremendous uh, expansion throughout the Pacific. And they haven't quite at that point invaded Guadalcanal, but they're planning to do so. The Battle of Coral Sea and the, uh, the attack on Port Moresby in New Guinea is basically underway at that time. So it, it really says two things, I think. One It's a great um, morale booster, as you suggest, John, about the the American public. But also kind of on the flip side, it's almost a little bit of a window opening for the Japanese uh, military that they don't embrace, that they don't look through to realize, you know, my goodness, uh, American air and naval power, if they can do this, Within a few months of what we thought was going to be a knockout blow of Pearl Harbor, what's the handwriting on the wall? They, again, I don't think even as late as 1944 in the Philippines, they, they fully under, understood that. But uh, Nimitz sort of, uh, in a way of building American morale, telegraphs what, what's going to happen uh, a few years down the road.
1: Tell us a little bit about Coral Sea and, the, and what took place there.
0: Well, it's April of of 1942. Uh, Two of the carriers, and and this becomes important to the story, Enterprise and Hornet are delivering the Doolittle uh, raid, they're actually returning from that. The other two American carriers, uh, Lexington and Yorktown, are in the um, Coral Sea looking for the Japanese attack that's going to come into the Coral Sea with the objective of seizing the the um, Port Moresby on, on the southern shore of, of New Guinea. And I think what's most important, when you talk about Nimitz as a leader and his style and everything, Nimitz, again, wants to marshal his carriers, put them all together, and make a major campaign against the Japanese. Ernest J. King... Chief of Naval Operations, the overall commander, is still saying, well, I'm not so sure about that. I think maybe we ought to send some battleships down there. And Nimitz is like, no, the battleships are too old. They're too slow. I want fast carriers ready to respond quickly. Well, what happens in a nutshell at at Coral Sea, Frank Jack Fletcher is in command. Uh, There are two carriers there, Lexington and Hornet. The opposing fleets never see one another. It's all fought with airplanes, all fought with, a, with an aerial duel, and at the end of the day, uh, the Americans may not have won a totally strategic victory, but they've certainly um, broken even and they've blunted the Japanese attack. Now in the process, Lexington is sunk and Yorktown is badly damaged. Nimitz's plan has been that with Bill Halsey in command, Enterprise and Hornet are going to join the Southern Pacific fleet as soon as the Doolittle raid is over. And indeed, as Coral Sea happens, Halsey, along with Enterprise and Hornet, are en route to the South Pacific. Well, Coral Sea happens, we lose one carrier, Yorktown's badly uh, wounded, and Yorktown then is um, goes under its own power back to, to Pearl Harbor. Nimitz says, um, you know, look, you got to turn this thing around in about forty-eight to seventy-two hours. We don't have a lot of time. I know the ship's badly wounded, but I need three carriers. And again, he's telling King because of intelligence that's being received, and all along the U.S. is beginning to read with greater clarity the Japanese uh, naval code. And rather famously, they they send out a a faulty message a fake message that basically says point such and such is low on water and you know they they verify that they're able to read the japanese code that particular point is is midway and nimitz has a really pretty clear picture i mean there's still a lot of gray but he knows that the next strike is going to come not as a follow up to coral sea in the south pacific but against Midway and potentially threatening Hawaii in the Central Pacific. And, of course, we know parenthetically that there's, there's, a, there's a wing of this that, that goes and invades the Aleutians in, in the North Pacific as well. But I guess the point as far as Nimitz as a commander, Nimitz as a leader, is that he's willing to um, play stock in this intelligence and go ahead and once again marshal his carriers. He's only got three this time, but Yorktown's turned around out of the yards again at Pearl Harbor. Another great example of what would have happened if the dry dock facilities hadn't been uh, operational at, at Pearl Harbor. So um, we, we have those, those carriers of, of Hornet, Yorktown, and, and Enterprise participating in the battle at Midway. And of course, famously at, at the end of the day, four Japanese carriers are lost, maybe even more importantly than the ships, so many airmen uh, are, are lost. And, you know, the United States, this is, this is a great theme, John, that, that I think sometimes overlooked, that Nimitz, again, as an innovator and a guy who knew a lot about American technology, uh, really appreciates, is that America is going to turn out pilots. America's going to turn out technology and planes and everything else. The Japanese economy just doesn't have the ability to do that. And uh, Japan's military, its air arm, does not have the depth of of experience that's going to be pushed through in a fairly rapid manner on the American side. So after the Battle of Midway in June of 1942, The war is far from won, but Nimitz has shown he's a leader in terms of getting men to work with him, that he's an innovator in terms of being able to marshal carriers and adapt to a new kind of warfare, and probably three, that he understands as a geographer, if you will, the scope of the entire Pacific, and what he has to do uh, over that vast landscape. And the follow-up, of course, to Midway is that King's third charge about, we're not going to sit around on our hands, we're going to take the the counteroffensive, comes into play during the summer of of 1942, when when Nimitz, uh, making a visit himself, decides we're going to hold Guadalcanal and and make a stand of it
1: there was a huge dispute was there not about whether or not they were going to follow the chain of japanese held islands up or try to avoid them entirely and just head straight for the mainland of japan or not. There's
0: always, the, well, there's always this, um, the one person we haven't mentioned, John, yet, who plays into this is Douglas MacArthur, <clears throat> because Douglas MacArthur gets command of, of the southwest Pacific area, essentially New Guinea and, and what will be the Philippines once they're retaken in 1944. And there, there's always kind of this parallel path toward Japan. There's Nimitz leading the island hopping through the Central Pacific there's MacArthur wanting to go from his headquarters in Australia with a with a, a, a second arrow that goes uh, through New Guinea and then into the Philippines and those two lines of attack are are going to continue the Joint Chiefs quite frankly can never decide well, we're only going to do this one you know they, they both kind of go on uh, together I think most mostly because there's inertia on MacArthur's part, because of who MacArthur is and and his public relations value and everything else in terms of that flank. But in terms of Nimitz's flank, I think there's value in uh, the Joint Chiefs recognizing that we can't go directly to Japan. We've got to come up with some some intermediate bases. And that's indeed what happens by way of kind of a broader strategy of, of island hopping that uh, takes us from Midway all the way to, uh, to Okinawa in the spring of, of 1945.
1: We'll return to our interview right after this sponsor message. And now, back to our show. A lot of historians have been rough on MacArthur with regard to his leaving the Philippines wide open uh, with our, our air, especially with our air and naval forces that he had command of in the Philippines and allowing the Philippines to be attacked and having most of the planes on the ground when the Japanese air wave came, I think 24 hours after Pearl Harbor. And MacArthur had been warned and from what I understand, MacArthur was at a dinner party late into the night, the night before. And command decisions, according to some historians, weren't made the following day when the Japanese wave came and wiped out a good portion of our Philippine Air Force. Is that a correct well, assessment?
0: Well, well, you know, I'm, I may be one of those historians who's been a little rough on Douglas MacArthur because one of my others, other books is in fact called MacArthur at War, World War II in the Pacific. And I guess I would say about that, that I think that regardless of what you say about resources, and MacArthur had plenty of resources, that was the place where George Marshall and the American military establishment assumed, rather than Pearl Harbor, that the Japanese would strike. So MacArthur's getting all kinds of reinforcements with with planes and men and, and, and ships before December 7th. Um, the story of the planes being caught on the ground is a little bit more uh, complex because they actually take off and then they land to refuel, and when they've landed the refuel, that's that's when the main Japanese attack comes at Clark Field. So there, you know, there's a, there's a question of responsibility there. But what is clear, and where I, what I think Douglas MacArthur really has to take. Um, some responsibility for, the main responsibility for, is that he is alerted very early on what's the morning of December 8th in the Philippines about the attack on Pearl Harbor. Almost inexplicably, he does nothing for roughly about six hours, even refusing to meet with a couple of his commanders. And I, one of the things that I put forward in my book, MacArthur at War, is that I, I think that there was some hope on his part, because of his long affinity for the Philippines, that somehow he might be able to keep that area and country out of war. Well, I think that was pretty naive actually, but I there, I don't know any other great explanation for why he didn't react more quickly, because he does, to your point, very definitely get a hey, we're at war, execute Plan Orange, which is essentially attacking Formosa and doing a counterattack with the B-17s that he has on on um, Luzon. That that never that never happens. Uh, that attack, those planes eventually get withdrawn to Mindanao, and and of course they're. <laughs> pretty well splintered by the time the the Japanese invade and take Manila.
1: The whole story of MacArthur being evacuated out of the Philippines and then the surrender of 60,000 American and Filipino soldiers to the Japanese and then the loss of over half of those men in prison camps at Bataan and other areas in the Philippines is one of the saddest stories of World War II. Who Who had the ultimate power there to decide whether we were going to surrender those men or whether we were going to tell them to fight to the last man? And would the, and would it have made a difference well and, and i and I apologize to our listeners for getting off the subject, but this is a question I'd love to have answered
0: that that's a that's a that too is a complicated story in terms of MacArthur actually thought that he still had retained some measure of of command. The folks in Washington are pretty clear thinking that Jonathan Wainwright is the supreme commander in the Philippines even though MacArthur had sort of divided up commands and thinking that, well, if Luzon fell, that Cebu uh, or Mindanao would be able to continue the resistance. Well, Wainwright, almost with a literal uh, gun to his head, is forced to surrender the entire archipelago. So the entire Philippines go down. Um, And the final date of that, I think, is is May 8th of 1942. Now... You know, the other piece of that story is that more than the Japanese advance, there were almost starving conditions among both the American and Filipino troops, because there are a lot more Filipino troops there even than 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 the Americans. And one of the things that, again, rather inexplicably, um, MacArthur does is not release rice rations that are stockpiled in Japanese-owned warehouses throughout the area. And I don't think anybody can really ever ever figure out that call. The other thing, of course, is that when he made the plans to defend Bataan, there, there's really a very much a slowness of moving all kinds of supplies there. Now, I guess we know the history of World War II enough to say that MacArthur's dream of being able to get back to the Philippines quickly uh, probably wouldn't have come to pass in any regard. But if, in fact, those foodstuffs and other supplies had been passed out, available there, could Bataan have held out another six months or so. And, you know, back to the the Nimitz piece of this story is Nimitz, of course, is absolutely involved with all of this because MacArthur is screaming to Roosevelt, where's the American Navy? Well, the truth of the matter is, is you and I have just gone through and chronicled where the American Navy, thanks to Chester W. Nimitz, has been with all kinds of carrier raids as close to the Philippines as New Guinea, uh, the Doolittle Raid, actions off Coral Sea and Midway. I mean, let's face it. If Nimitz had not won the Battle of Midway, secured Hawaii, made it impregnable, and, and ready to move west again, it really wouldn't have mattered much about what MacArthur was was doing in Australia, because the Japanese would have been on on the verge of, of, of winning the war. But I guess my point, and if you want to talk more about it, we certainly can, Nimitz and MacArthur, despite MacArthur's frequent public posturing, really do work pretty well together. Um, it's been sort of, and, and maybe even in the Admirals, I'm guilty of this a little bit about playing up the controversies between services and the rivalries. I think my, my thought at the end, having written about both of these men in depth, is that sometimes that was really fostered by staff people who had their own egos and agendas And when push came to shove, MacArthur and Nimitz, MacArthur and Halsey, certainly over coordination for for Guadalcanal, worked very well together.
1: What do you think Nimitz's biggest regret was for his command during World War II?
0: I think I would have to fast forward a little bit to the fall of, of 1944. Um, MacArthur's poised and ready to uh, go back to the Philippines. Um, on the American side, we've had the Battle of the Philippine Sea. Uh, Spruance has won a great victory there. Uh, Nimitz is pushing forces um, westward. He's already gone through the, uh, the Gilberts and the Marshalls. And he's basically uh, looking at the island of Peleliu and the Palau Islands, which are kind of the next logical step for the Philippines. Well, um, this is going to turn out to be an absolutely uh, bloody, terrible thing. The 1st Marine Division and, and the great book, uh, The Old Breed, tells that story. And what happened in a nutshell is that Halsey basically says, look, um, I don't think we've been conducting these carrier raids against the Philippines. I don't think that there's there, there's that much resistance there. I think we ought to expedite MacArthur's timetable about reinvading the Philippines at Leyte 60 days. And all we really need is a little bit of, of resources from Nimitz, which he's willing to give. But he, there's sort of discussion about whether we should just forget and, and delete the uh, invasion of the Palo Islands and, and Peleliu. Well, Nimitz looks at, and by this time, there's this huge pipeline of men and materials uh, flowing into the Pacific. Managing this at Nimitz's level is just mind-boggling. And Nimitz says, you know, I'm I'm willing to support that with some divisions farther back in in the pipeline, but we're 48 hours off the beachhead. We've got to go ahead and complete this operation. And, um, what happens, of course, again, is horrific losses among among the US Marines. And I think in in Nimitz's mind, uh, although he may not have said it ever quite this bluntly, I think he regretted that maybe there wasn't some other way or something he could have done to add that group of islands to the islands that were being bypassed. Um, I think he, again, because Nimitz is kind of the salt of the earth guy, there's a lot less ego on his side than on MacArthur's side. If there was a way to, to hold them a little bit, uh, divert them and push them into the Philippines, he would have done it. But again, this decision has gotta be made, again, about 48 hours off the beachhead at Peleliu, and uh, Nimitz decides he's got to go ahead and invade the islands. And I think um, he, with a little bit more time, would have made a different decision.
1: Uh, I've got a side question for you, Walt. I've always had a deep interest in Amelia Earhart's story. And as my listeners know, I know I've said it countless times, that she was—I'm I'm totally with the crash and capture theory that the Japanese picked her up on uh, July, probably July 7th, 1937— that she had been either either run out of gas or or forced down, uh, with her Electra, and that the Japanese picked her up, and ended up taking her to Saipan, where she and her co-pilot Fred Noonan died. An author named Fred Gurner, uh, in the early 60s, wrote a book about Amelia Earhart, in his belief that she was picked up by the Japanese, and it was a hugely popular book, and the book alone inspired a lot of replies back to Gurner from servicemen uh, who had seen her plane in Saipan uh, when they were cleaning up their operation after the Saipan invasion. There were local Chamorros who, to this day, swear that they saw Amelia Earhart as a prisoner of the Japanese in the summer of 1937, There were witnesses all along the trail from the Marshall Islands where it is said that her plane went down and where witnesses did see that plane coming down. They saw the Japanese pick them up. They saw them being transported to a ship called the Kyushu. Gurner had contacted a lot of people in Washington and one of the people that he contacted was Chester Nimitz and he became friendly to Nimitz and Nimitz told him off the record. He said, don't give up. The Japanese did take her, but I can't tell you that officially. And it's circumstantial, we all know that, but it was one of the things that really kept Gurner in the chase and brought a, of, a of, brought a lot of other researchers into the chase as well. Did you, in your research, ever come across any mention of uh, Earhart or any knowledge of her capture?
0: Well, Gerner's book is is a a great piece, and it's still foundational, I think, in in the Earhart um, uh, legacy. I did not come across anything specifically between Nimitz and and Gerner, but what I can tell you, which is which, kind of plays into the bigger Nimitz story. You know, in in 1937, when Amelia Earhart went down, um, William D. Leahy, who's another of of the four or five uh, star uh, admirals is in fact um, uh, just about to become chief of, of naval operations. And he tells Franklin Roosevelt that, look, we've got to do a massive search. We, we've got to get into the area of the Marshall and, and Gilbert Islands, which basically Japan, having received as Japan's actually an ally in World War 1 so that's why it ends up with some of the German mandates in in the in the Pacific and they're not supposed to fortify them but they they definitely do so, uh, Leahy is one, um, and at that point, uh, as I recall, Nimitz is is just being posted to Washington with his Bureau of, of Navigation job. So he, he wouldn't have been in the field operationally at sea in the Pacific during that time. But Leahy wants to go ahead and do a major search, which they do in part, but Leahy wants to go ahead and actually put troops ashore on some of those Japanese islands to see what's going on. So, Roosevelt, of course. being being very careful about what that would provoke, says no. But I think that to your laying that out, had that happened, perhaps not on Saipan, but uh, in the Marshalls and the Gilberts, and you know we know she was bound for Howland Island and and uh, those areas there. It you know it might have it might have shown some evidence of a lot sooner.
1: Yeah, the Gilberts were I believe about 150 miles southeast. And the marshals, 150 miles or 200 miles to the northwest. Uh, and from what I understand, the Japanese would not allow us to search the Marshalls. We did fly over the Gilberts, but the Japanese wouldn't allow us anywhere near the marshals. And as it turned out, the Japanese said that they were going to handle that part of a search, and they would let us know uh, what they found. Of course, they said, well, what do you know? We didn't find anything. We uh, didn't another, find anything. Yeah. Another story for another time. Nimitz seemed to me the kind of guy who would have told Gurner something exactly like that, and say, "You're going to have to keep this off the record. I'm not going to put it in writing, but don't give up your search." Uh, I,
0: I I think that's probably true.
1: There were four five-star admirals. Could you talk a little bit about them, and with perspective to World War II?
0: Sure. It's uh, there. There's only four men in American history who have achieved the five-star rank of fleet admiral. And this all occurs in December of 1944, when Franklin Roosevelt really feels that he wants to elevate the, uh, the high command. The Navy's gonna get uh, four, the Army's gonna get four uh, generals of the Army. And on the, the Navy side, those four men are William D. Leahy, who's basically been uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Roosevelt's confidant, uh, sort of a combination national security advisor, uh, and and quite frankly also functioned uh, in the last year of Roosevelt's life as, as White House chief of staff uh, de facto. And uh, the, the second one, of course, is Ernest J. King, who's commanded all of the American fleet. The, the, the third one is uh, Chester Nimitz and Nimitz, I think, to his credit then, when the question comes up of, you know who should have the fourth, set of five stars on the Navy side. Uh, The the two folks who are kind of in the running are, are Bill Halsey, who's gotten a lot more press, and Raymond Spruance, who has served as Nimitz's chief of staff for a time. And probably Nimitz recognizes that for all that Bill Halsey did at sea, that Spruance, with his little bit more of a cerebral approach, you know, may have been uh, as, as much of an ally and, and a help in, in, in winning this war than, than anyone. Well, Halsey gets the fourth set of, of five stars. Uh, it takes a little while for that to happen. But Nimitz, uh, after his retirement, continues to lobby for a number of years that Ray Spruance, Raymond Spruance, and by the way, he did always go by Raymond, sign his name, uh, Raymond Spruance, Raymond Spruance uh, was deserving of, of that, uh, what would have been a fifth set of, of five stars. That never happened, Congress never did that. But here's the final piece of the story, that in death, all of these men, Nimitz, Spruance, and a couple of other of their friends, Richmond Kelly Turner, all lie buried together, as was their plan. Uh, while they were living, they are all buried together with simple graves and simple white crosses in the National Cemetery above San Francisco International Airport, above San Bruno there, in in the foothills of of California. So I've I've walked along the line and thought a lot about them.
1: And no doubt thank them for their contributions.
0: Indeed. Thank you. Thanking them from uh, an eternally grateful nation.
1: Have you ever been aboard the USS Nimitz?
0: No, I have not. And and you know uh, what? What a great example is the lead ship of a carrier class. It is hard to believe, John, that this ship launched in uh, 1972, and of course it was Nimitz's daughter, uh, uh, Kate, who uh, did did the uh, did the christening. Is 50 years old and just about to be retired as the new Gerald Ford class comes online. But uh, uh, yeah, it would be great. I, I don't know what the Navy's plans are for her. But what a, what, what a piece of, of, of history and, and really a ship that kind of uh, spans the entire period from, you know, in some respects, the, the ships that, that operated in, during the Vietnam War were, were sort of post-World War II era things. And here's the USS Nimitz uh, coming uh, down the ways at that period of time. And 50 years later in the 21st century, you know, we're still talking about the USS Nimitz.
1: I got aboard once in a civilian capacity. Uh, This was back in the early 80s, and it was docked in Norfolk. If I recall, her numbers were 68. 68. It's it's the only aircraft carrier I've been on. I had a job in fishing tackle sales, and my original territory was the Outer Banks of North Carolina, but this was winter. And so I talked the owner of the company, into my trying out the Navy to see if I could get special services to, to use us for replacement for their fishing tackle. So got on board the Nimitz, had a chance to talk to special services, and they explained how when they're docked uh, in some foreign ports, and they're allowed to, they lower the fantail and actually fish off the fantail using huge pen reels. <laughs> 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 and they said, they said that's that a quick way to become friends with the chef.
0: <laughs> indeed <laughs> that's great good story
1: <laughs> well thank you all so much uh for for this book the admirals and would you like to maybe tell us a little bit about some of the other books you've done which are which are fascinating you've done quite a bit i know you mentioned well, some sure. of them at the top of this interview but maybe add some of your favorites
0: Well, sure. And let me just mention Brothers Down, which is the story of there were uh, 78 men, 37 sets of of brothers who were on the USS Arizona at at Pearl Harbor. And, you know, they they took something like an 80%, 85% casualty rate. Uh, Very few of them survived. And it's, it's really, it's, it's a different, more personal story than sometimes I've written because it's, it's, it's all the family members who have given me letters and diaries. And uh, to, to see these young men who thought they were safe by serving on a battleship, thought they were even extra safe by uh, serving with a brother, uh, gone, it's, uh, it, it's a pretty mo- emotional book. And by the way, it'll, it'll be out in paperback um, uh, next week. So, perfect perfect, perfect timing for how we're talking.
1: Well, good. Well, there's your opportunity right there. All All right.
0: right. Sounds good, John.
1: Walter Borneman, thank you so much for giving us your time today. It was excellent. Uh, Thank you for your patience with me and all our questions. I think our listeners are going to enjoy this very much. And it's a fantastic look at Admiral Nimitz and all that he gave us and the legacy that he left us. Thank you very much for your time.
0: Good to be with you, John. Thank you.